Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. We've just finished putting up the Christmas tree. The tree topper is going on in a few minutes, so come on in and sit around, bask in the glow of the bubble lights, and listen to the show this week. So, we have a big one. TJ Miller will stop by a little bit later on. He's the star of Silicon Valley, of Deadpool, of this weekend's office Christmas party. He has something very special this weekend that he's doing for you and for me. He wants to tell you all about it. You know Riz Ahmed from Nightcrawler, from The Night Of, terrific young actor. He's also one of the stars of Rogue One. We have a teaser, a little teaser, a taste of a conversation with him. First up though, we're going to talk with John Madden. John Madden is a director of theater, film, television, and radio. He directed Shakespeare in Love, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture. More recently, he's gained recognition for directing the best exotic Marigold Hotel and its sequel, the second best exotic Marigold Hotel. His new film, Miss Sloan, stars Jessica Chastain in a political thriller about, quote, the most morally bankrupt profession since faith healing. It paints an ugly picture of the behind-the-scenes lobbyist machinations that run Washington. Here's John Madden talking about Miss Sloan. There's a, a, a cheat in the movie of sorts. It wasn't shot there in Washington. There is a cheat. I'm a bit, uh, <laughs> I feel I've been rumbled, you know, uh, coming here uh, to do this because, yeah, we did shoot a lot of the movie here in Toronto, uh, which did an absolutely uh, spectacular job of standing in for Washington, D.C., I might add. And what was it about Toronto? Was it just, uh, was it the locations? Was it the dollar? What, uh, what uh, part you You know, have? the dollar comes into it. Uh, these days, if you're making a film like this, and this is, uh, you know, I would put in the independent sector, this film. <clears throat> it is a studio movie, but mm -hmm. it's financed by a, a French studio and not made for, uh, you know, a huge amount of money. Right. Just enough, although I wouldn't have said that <laughs> while I was shooting it. Um, you have to think about, uh, you know, tax breaks and so forth. And this government, uh, your government, is very enlightened on that mm -hmm. issue. And as such, it's become a magnet um, for um, film and now hugely TV production. Mm -hmm. So the sector's expanded here, which is very good, I guess, for the, your economy. And it's good to come, uh, uh, you know, to make films here. I mean, Toronto does have a, a, an extraordinary versatility. It stands in for many cities in the States. Or somebody said they think it's the first time it stood in for Washington. It might be, although they shoot designated survivor here, a television oh, show. Oh, that's true. So that, they, they were shooting at the yeah. same time as we were. I take it back. <laughs> However, I think we're the first. No. You, yeah, you, you probably started a week earlier <laughs> yes, or something exactly. like that. <laughs> and it, it's interesting. We're going to talk all about Miss Sloan and lots of other stuff. Uh, but I read an article today, or I saw a headline of an article more rightly today, uh, that said it's the return of the mid-level picture. And that's what made me, uh, you, you jogged that in my memory when uh, you said that you know, we had just enough. It, it, sort of it's, a, it's not a $150 million budget that you're working with, which seems to be all the studios have been interested in making lately are these giant budget pictures. Uh, and to the, to the detriment of some smaller, more interesting things. Yes. This uh, seems to be good news. Well, it is. I mean, I wouldn't... I think when you, you talk about mid-level films, I think you're probably talking about mid-level budget films. Yeah, and that's, we're what I mean. certainly, that's what I mean. We're certainly not in that zone, but we, right. if you say we are the kind of film that used to constitute serious, challenging, character-driven, complicated, meaningful work, for example, in the era that I grew up in with, you know, Alan Pakula movies mm -hmm. and... Uh, you know, Parallax View and the conversation, all of the the new wave of 
uh, uh, filmmaking, they did occupy a sort of mid-place in the budget level. What's happened now is it's become extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, so there are the, the big tent poles that uh, 150, 250 million, where the potential profits are enormous. And then you have the smaller independent market. Those mid-level uh, movies, mid-budget level, are still very difficult to make any kind of profit from. But I think it's good. I agree with you broadly. I think mm-hmm. it's really good because I think, strangely, the huge umbrella of these, these um, or the, the big tent of these yeah, yeah. tentpole movies means that a lot of little minnows can swim in and, and get some kind of oxygen um, because people are prepared to invest to find the one that actually breaks out mm-hmm. and, and comes out of that zone. Um, and, I, and I don't complain about that. I mean, I t- it's a big budget is not important to me. You need enough money to make the film and you have to make a judgment about, you know, is the, are the film's wings going to be clipped because right. you haven't got enough money to get outside and get the kind of scale and scope you need. Uh, but this this film didn't need that, it, uh, it, and it feels a lot more expensive than it was, <laughs> I think, when you see it. But that's not really the point. And you don't want to be burdened with that when you're coming out into the marketplace because then everybody gets nervous and everybody wants to sort of ru- but smooth off the rough edges of the film and so forth. The basic idea of the movie is you have Jessica Chastain, who's fantastic in this film, playing uh, Miss Sloan, the woman who is a lobbyist, and seemingly someone who will do almost anything, take on any client except the gun lobby. Mm-hmm. And she accepts a contract to uh, campaign against and create a campaign against uh, the, the gun lobby who were fighting against uh, registration. And this is a... a, a no, mo- we're not registration, actually, background checks. Background checks, yeah. Though the gun lobby would like you to believe it's about registration. Right, right. And, and gun... The the issues around gun, you you as your accent uh, would suggest, uh, are mm-hmm. English. But gun violence is something that is an issue for you. is is a, is a topic that you have studied and looked at a great deal. Uh, yeah, it's. I think anybody who stands on the outside of this issue, which is famously divisive and very passionately fought and uh, and seemingly intractable in American culture, is one that is very hard to understand. Is confounding to mm-hmm. an outsider, baffling. Um, you know, exasperating uh, perhaps and dismaying because you see carnage routinely. You see a president who's no longer able even to articulate any reaction because he said it so many times yeah, before. After doing it 20 times. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So so it's it's some – there's some uh, – uh, well, I would curiosity would be too, too weak a word, too feeble a word, a sort of passionate need to understand what that is about. And it's probably true, having now obviously been in the center of this idea for quite a long time, that people don't understand the constitutional significance Mm -hmm. of this and how deeply held that view is. And there are plenty of people, as we know, 70% of of, uh, NRA members are in favor of extended background checks. It's not a statistic that they advertise very much, but it's true. And so you find yourself wondering why on earth that is and how that can be. Um, and the answer is fairly clear and probably well known to everyone. <clears throat> but, um, you know, it, it's uh, curiosity is a very good spur to, for filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And the movie is not um, a lesson. It's not a polemic. It's a thriller. It's a thriller. And, uh, and it's a story primarily. It's also a character study almost chiefly of a very, very interesting 
and peculiar and unusual creature, you know, quite extraordinarily embodied by Jessica. But it is a thriller, and I wouldn't make any apology for that. You know, the the object is to tell a story really well, to make people walk out of the cinema going, wow. And um, but on the way, give them something to talk about that may last longer than getting their keys, their car keys out of their pockets. You know, um, so that is the kind of movie you're describing. I would hope it's, it certainly mm-hmm. aspires to to be in that zone. Um, uh, but you know, it's, it's entertaining is what a film needs to be in the first instance. My guest is John Madden. His film Miss Sloan is in theaters right now. Uh, you can check it out at a, a theater near you. Uh, Jessica Chastain stars in this film. It is the second time that you've worked with her after mm-hmm. the film The Debt, mm-hmm. which was about seven, six, seven years ago. We came out then and we actually made it two years earlier. It got fouled up in, in studios, closing down and so forth. But that, well, tell me about that. Okay, we'll get, we'll get yeah. to the other stuff. The, was it, is that what they call being in turnaround or is it no, 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 the film, the film wasn't in turnaround. No. no, it was made by Miramax, which was, Miramax yeah. was a specialty division famously mm-hmm. under the Weinsteins uh, of Disney. Disney bought the, the Miramax project. Uh, and it became the first specialty studio, which yeah. then all the other studios uh, did their own version of. But uh, once the Weinsteins left, it, it, it existed for another two or three years, and Disney's idea of itself and the way it wanted to make movies changed. They closed down the studio after we'd finished the film. With the film trapped inside. <laughs> yes, basically it became a kind of temporary orphan, although Disney said don't, they were very positive about the film, but clearly there was no way Disney could release that film. It was right. a... You know, quite a dark thriller about about um, uh, the search for a Holocaust um, uh, perpetrator, as it mm-hmm. were, and um, and so we, when they said, "Well, we love this film, but we don't know what to do with it. Why don't you see if you can do something with it?" We wandered about for a bit, and and then Universal understood we were on the market and picked the film up. Uh, and did marvelously with it. But um, it was two years after we made it that it came out, by which time Jessica Chastain, who'd been an unknown actress when I cast her, um, had suddenly a body of work, (laughs) you know, of extraordinary uh, range uh, by the time our film came out. And was that... uh, Tell me about that two years. We just have a couple of minutes left. Um, It's got to be frustrating. It was actually heartbreaking because the film... You know, I would say this, wouldn't I, since I directed it, but actually standing away from it was a really strong film. And I'm glad to say when Universal released it, it did extremely well and, uh, it, you know, developed really quite a passionate following. And it, and uh, my people often talk to me about it. So to be an orphan once, which is what we were when Disney shut down Miramax, was one thing. But to be an orphan twice, <laughs> to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, um, was pretty, you know, I felt like, what is going on here? This is a really powerful film and strong film starring Helen Mirren. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, Jessica played the younger version of Helen Mirren and Tom Wilkinson and was quite, quite, an, you know, quite an amazing cast. And it just didn't find a home. But very quickly it did. Universal jumped straight on top of it and they said, we want this. And so, it, you know, there was a happy ending. But it's, no, it, it, it's, if a film fails to find an audience, in this case, literally, uh, it's very heartbreaking. Yeah, I guess that's the vagaries of a of a creative life trying to 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 balance the 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 business with the creative side and just keep moving forward to the next project. 
It's a political thriller uh, that seems ripped from the headlines uh, a little bit anyway, uh, although it was probably made last year, I would guess. No, it was made this year. It was made early this year yeah. and, and, and comes out. But still, before the election. And I guess there's yes. something that always strikes me uh, when movies come out seemingly at the perfect time, because movies take a long time to make. They, mm-hmm. You know, there's a gestation period, then you actually have to shoot, there's editing. To actually have a film come out when it should, when it can have maximum impact, yes. when you might not have actually realized it, a year previous yes. uh, is, I, I think, must be, you know, the, the movie gods are smiling down on you because this movie is about lobbyists. This movie is about draining the swamp in a certain way, which if you've uh, paid attention to Donald Trump's speeches, it's a it's a phrase that you've heard over and over and over again. Mm. Uh, and in fact, I noticed in about the first 20 seconds of this in Jessica Chastain's first speech, <laughs> she uses the word Trump in her first. She does. E- even though, even though uh, he wasn't president elect at that point. Um, the the timing of this is obviously coincidental. Is it fortuitous for well, you? It, it's it's not entirely coincidental, but not for the reasons that you think, which is that the film, as you know, concerns the passage through Congress of a fictional mm-hmm. uh, uh, gun uh, sort of uh, uh, gun regulation bill, um, proposing extending uh, background checks, and that issue, which is the occasion for the film, if not its subject. Um, was an issue we didn't, I didn't want to get behind the politics on. We assumed it would be a very salient and prominent issue in the debate, the presidential discourse. Uh, Little did we know that there was to be no, uh, um, you know, policy issues Mm -hmm. in the debate or that it could ever allow to get any air anyway and it just descended into the gutter and lower than that. But um, we worried that that we might somehow, not that the legislation would change because sadly it never does, but that some the film would not be able to take account of something. And so once I saw the assembly of the film, which was uh, beginning of May, I, I felt that I could complete it fairly quickly, quickly enough in time to come out, uh, you know, be released just after the election. None of us at that point had any idea what form that election was going to take. And so you're completely correct in saying that the reflections it now throws off are fortuitous to a degree because the film is actually about political process um, and it is exactly that that really this this, um, last election cycle has has kind of thrown into very, very sharp relief. In a way that it never has before. I Mm -hmm. mean, we're talking about you know, uh, the dismantling of the GOP. We're talking about lots of things in a way that has never been thought of seriously before. There's been rumblings, I guess, but never serious ones. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with that. And and I think also it's, it's thrown a, a tremendous kind of spotlight on the whole idea of the narrative that is being presented right. by a political candidate about what they do, what they are going to do, what has happened. Which, as we know, the veracity of that seems mm-hmm. to have been, you know, thrown to the winds because, uh, you know, the, the president-elect, um, in his wisdom, can walk away from a pronouncement he's just made, make something up out of whole cloth, no need to substantiate it, no need to do any of those things. And the other side is reeling to come up with a narrative that answers that. 
Um, and it, in what you get is this weird thing of competing narratives, uh, more so than I ever remember before, because this, you know, his own policy statements were, were such a switchback ride. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it became itself the subject. That's exactly what this film is about, although in terms of uh, the gun issue and so forth. Um, so, it, yeah, it's, it's, it is an extraordinarily apposite time for the film to come out. Uh, I, I, I can't quite determine in my head whether people are so exhausted with politics they'll run in the other direction from a film that has politics at its core. And to those people, I would say, come back. It's not a political lecture. It's a, it's a, it's it's a, a character study. It's a character and, study and, and, and a you thriller. were drawn, from what I understand, and you can, you can tell me, uh, that you were drawn to the central character, not so much even though you're an American uh, mm. news junkie and mm. political junkie, uh, but not so much drawn, drawn to that, but drawn to the main character, drawn to Miss Sloan, mm. uh, Jessica Chastain's character, because she is smart. Uh, she quick with a line. She is uh, powerful, and but damaged in a certain way as well. Completely. She's a complex character mm-hmm. is another way of saying that, and that is entirely right. That's exactly what. She's fascinating. She's a m- more extreme version of a breed that, as you say, has, has a worse reputation mm-hmm. than faith healing um, and, and uh, you know, completely fascinating character to, to watch in, in the first instance and to see how she does what she does and then to start unraveling as a result of it. And that's really where the core kind of fascination of the film is for me um, because in the end, I'm character is what... Mm-hmm is what I'm fascinated by and, by extension, the actor who is actually able to illuminate and, uh, you know, draw a magnetic kind of uh, depiction of that, uh, which, you know, Jessica can, can do Jessica can do better than anybody. Um, so I, I think it's – that is the fascination of it. It's no uh, accident that the film is named after that character <laughs> – or indeed that Jessica's performance is being, you know, universally recognized as outstanding. Um, so, so yeah, that's very much the core of it. This doesn't give away anything, but there's also a, 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 a redemption for her of some sorts uh, woven <clears throat> into all of this. So it is a look at the the, the seamy underbelly of what happens behind the scenes, yes, it's behind an, closed doors. It is, but it's not a pessimistic no. film in the end. I mean, I think I think it's it's realistic. Um, in its depiction of the way things are, I mean, it's obviously extended, yeah. and and luckily we're not we're not constrained by the 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 pressures that operate on a lot of these films, which nowadays frequently are or seem to want to be based on a true set of circumstances, right. and then you are you have an obligation to the people the film is about, uh, and and that's completely understandable. This this film floats free of that, but. Uh, you know, the redemption that you refer to or the sort of, I would call it the glimmer of light yes. um, is is not, I think, conveyed with the usual apparatus that these kind of stories tend to have. It's like, ah, now we understand why yeah. she is the way she is. It's not that film at all. Um, but it is, in a sense, about somebody reclaiming that tiny bit of humanity that... Uh, 
is still burning there somewhere, even though she's done her best to eliminate it completely because it gets in the way of her doing what she does. In a, in a town that, that doesn't encourage it. Either, yes, and, and sure. doesn't allow it in a woman anyway. It's a thriller. It is a timely one. Uh, but it's also, uh, I think, first and foremost, a thriller. And, mm-hmm. and for me, that's the aspect that really kept me going because I think that we've been hearing so much about the, what happens in the back rooms on the news that at first I was thinking, I don't know if I, just, if I, if I, if I need more about this. Yes. And then the thriller aspects kick in and yes. the, the sort of house of cards aspects kick in. Yeah. And I think, you know, people uh, have been caught up by house of cards. I think that's going to do well and, and act in your favor here in yeah, this Yeah, good. Film. Well, let's hope so. Yeah, there's a funny thing about, about thrillers is that um, you know, the crucial thing about stories like that unfolding in the right way is, is how much you invest and how carefully you invest mm-hmm. in the setup. Yeah. And uh, obviously this film uh, does that and has to do that. And that's the period you're probably referring to where mm-hmm. you think, my, my, I'm not sure I really understand what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I always draw the parallel with a Shakespeare play, actually, for obvious reasons where even though I know Shakespeare very well and and I'm familiar with um, a great number of the plays, whenever I go and see a Shakespeare production, it takes me 10 to 15 minutes to, to kind of zone in on the language mm-hmm. um, and get through the language to what's actually happening. And then suddenly you hear it and the music makes sense. And um, this film is no different, I think, because these people speak in an incredibly rapid kind of code and idiom. And with some amazing lines with, as well. Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, it's very, very, very smartly written. And these are people who know one another, who are ahead of one another. They think strategically. They talk ahead of themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk in shorthand. And, um, you know, that for a while you're panting to keep up. There's a character in, the, in about the third or fourth scene of the film who's a, a young kind of tyro, a guy who's just joined the mm-hmm. team, very smart, very industrious, and he's asked a question by Jessica's uh, a character. He says, uh, okay, so um, uh, uh, cakes and cookies, does sales tax apply to, one of the, to both of those or just one? And there's a long pause, and he says, I don't know. Which is the wrong answer. No, it's the <laughs> wrong answer. Room. But in, interestingly, I think he speaks on behalf of the audience at that point <laughs> who feel like, I don't know either. And the fact that the movie stops and takes account of that yeah. and says, okay, listen up. And she tells a story, the, the purpose of which is to say, know your subject, people, um, which is her, her motto, her mm. credo. You've got to be inside your topic and know what you're talking about. And strangely, the audience around about that point starts to catch up with her, also because they start to see her fragilities at that point too. But it's, um, yeah, they're fascinating. That kind of storytelling is a very fascinating thing to undertake. And uh, Kelly Conaway came to mind when I was watching this a little bit, the, yeah. the spokesman for or spokesperson for Donald Trump. Uh, what did you uh, or how did you work with uh, Jessica Chastain to mold this character or do you? Is it all just on the page and you go, do what you do? Uh, you know, um, Jessica's very interesting in this regard. She's famous for doing her homework. Mm-hmm. Um I also have to say, from a director's standpoint, she's famous for not interfering. <laughs> you know, in in um, she's not excessively controlling about the writing. She right. starts from the proposition in the film. So I sent her this script as soon as I read it. 
I mean, literally, as soon as I finished it, I emailed her because she and I had been looking for something to do together since the debt. And I said, "This has your name on it, unless I'm a Dutchman, yeah. and uh, and my name doesn't pronounce well in Dutch." <laughs> so, so give this a read. And she responded immediately. I said, "Look, I'm going to go to work on it now because the script needs to evolve. It's a first-time script, brilliant script, absolutely brilliant, even in that iteration." Um, and she didn't. She said, "I said, do you want to meet and talk to me about that?" She said, "No, you get to the script to where you're happy with it. I trust you. We've worked together before," uh, which we did. And there, over six months, so we're now talking like last September, uh, uh, October-ish, and then I gave her the script again, which she was very thrilled with. And then when she came to, she was shooting, as she always is, mm -hmm. another project, but she came onto this right film. She's here right now shooting she something. Indeed, yeah, she indeed, yeah. um, uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, no That's less. Right. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, she then went to do her own, I mean, we, we pointed her in a lot of directions, uh, in terms of political consultants, lobbying a firm that who'd become our kind of, uh, you know, our guides in this situation. And she went to D.C. We arranged that visit and she immediately sought out her own kind. I mean, she basically Googled as many <laughs> uh, female lobbyists and they're not in the majority, as you can imagine, yeah. an extreme minority in that world. And just essentially went and interrogated them all. Um, and talked to them, shadowed them, went to see what they did, talked about the ideas in the script with them, not that any of them had read the script. And that's the way she finds herself. Uh, she makes the ground solid underneath her. So it's not based on any one individual. As a matter of fact, the writer based the character on his mother, but only <laughs> in respect of the force of character, right. <clears throat> the strength, the forthrightness, not the deviousness, you yeah, would say. Yeah, That's yeah, him yeah. making that contribution. <laughs> but um, And so there's a kind of truth to the character at, at a human level um, that you have to work hard to get down to it. Right. And the, the film eventually brings that much closer to the surface. But she feels her way into it. Um, she's very, very bright, um, very unjudgmental, uh, both of characters and of you know the process by which we get to the character that she's going to play. I, I don't think an actor can judge their character, though. No, you you, you can't say I'm going to play you'd a be, bad you'd person. You'd be surprised yeah. how many people do and say yeah. I can't do this because this is so grossly unsympathetic. Mm -hmm. Nobody will ever identify with me, uh, which obviously is a big issue with this um, part because yeah. she does many things that you might call objectively mm -hmm. unsympathetic, but um, and yet in her hands, you still find yourself totally engaged and engrossed by her and very quickly rooting for her, actually. You made uh, The Debt with Jessica Chastain, as we talked about earlier. Mm. Uh, she was an unknown uh, back then. The film took a couple of years to come out. How has she changed over the years? I, I just think she's got more... Um, uh, she's got greater latitude to do what she would always have wanted to do. Right. Uh, I don't think Jessica takes any part she doesn't want to play. Um, and I think she has definitely, you know, quite, quite openly um, spoken about wanting to try and change the landscape so that somehow or other, or at least contribute to the changing of a landscape. She wouldn't be so arrogant as to think she <laughs> could change it. But um, uh, to, uh, about, you know, uh, telling stories about women in which women are allowed to be active uh, leaders um, in, and not defined by the famous, you know, Bechdel test. Um, yeah. 
kind of criteria, you know, which is to do with sort of emotionality or somebody's boyfriend or somebody's mother or... You pass the Bechdel test if you have female characters talking to one another and they're not talking about a boyfriend, a husband or makeup or hair or whatever. Exactly. If they're talking about real life issues. Yes, exactly. Or in this case, work. And it's amazing how many (laughs) movies don't pass that test. I know, I know, because there are... People's... The way women are perceived in the world, I think, but also in movies, consigns them to a particular kind of role. Mm -hmm. And it's quite amazing in that way. The idea there's something really quite um, uh, revolutionary (laughs) about presenting, for example, a woman who isn't initially sympathetic Mm -hmm. in a role like this. You know, we've certainly seen plenty of uh, roles where women are bitches, uh, quote unquote, because they're the villains of the piece. Right. Um, uh, but I think a, a heroine, I would almost call her that, I suppose she's an anti-heroine in a certain kind of a way, is a rarer breed, particularly one who doesn't get you know, the speech explaining what it was in her childhood that made her behave yeah. this way. I'm glad we don't get that speech. We don't yes. need that speech in Miss Sloan. We certainly don't. I want to ask a, a question, though. As I look through all these titles here, uh, and I think you know, I see Mrs. Brown, Shakespeare in Love, which won Gwyneth Paltrow, her Academy Award, uh, the, the uh, Marigold Hotel films, Miss Sloan, The Debt. Uh, would you call yourself a, a woman's director or a director of women? Uh, you know, I've been, since I've been uh, talking about this film, that's a question I've been asked a lot, and, I, and I, I've stopped scratching my head now. <laughs> uh, but I would I'd say... Say it does seem so. Yes, I, it does. Um, it, it, if even I, who look back and have not necessarily planned my career in terms mm-hmm. of certain uh, principles, I simply respond to, you know, material I'm interested in and and um, and so forth. But it, it, it that that issue constantly comes up, and it isn't an accident, I suppose. It is happenstance in one way, and another way it isn't because women are. As, as Obama said about uh, about his wife, the superior beings, <laughs> I believe. I totally believe that. You know, I've been lucky to find one infinitely superior to me that me I've too. spent all of my life with. <laughs> and um, and I, I am completely into women in every possible way. And I find the balance of uh, strength and intellect and sensitivity and empathy and all of the things... Uh, and just endurance and uh, lack of ego, uh, which we are bedeviled by and we're, we're stumbling through life, us men, and we wouldn't do very well without their help and support and understanding. So, uh, yeah, I, I find them fascinating and I'm very drawn to them. And uh, it tends to be what I like to direct, but it's never a criteria. Yeah, it's never a- I, won't say, I won't say I'm not going to direct this because... Right. But I, I guess there must be some unconscious selection process that's going on where I say, you know, this is the film I want to do. It, it, because it just dawned on me as I was reading through all the titles. I think he's worked with every great actor, <laughs> actress out there uh, at some point, and they all seem to be the leads in all his films. It's so. true. It's true. Uh, for the for the best exotic Marigold Hotel films and it, and its sequel, the second best exotic Marigold Hotel, you actually shot them on location. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell me about some of the challenges of shooting on location in India? I had a friend of mine who made a film there, 
and uh, they were shooting on the streets of New Delhi. And later he found that they had to digitally go back and change all the eye lines of people because people would walk by, see a camera, and like sort of stare directly at the camera it, and that sort of thing. So they had to change some things there. It's a different. Uh, well, the curiosity is unquenchable in that country. Yeah. And uh, it's some, one of the things I love about it. They are just um, curious about everything. Uh, you know, it's a great, great gift when you get to go into another world to make a film. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's obviously a culture with its own giant movie industry mm-hmm. that uh, we were barely a sort of pimple on the <laughs> on the face of that. Uh, and they couldn't quite understand the way we were going about it. They were sort of baffled, for example. We worked entirely with an Indian crew right. other than a couple of department heads. I didn't know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. we did, yeah. Um, we took some department heads uh, with us, but uh, just simply because of the collaborative mm-hmm. need, the time I need to spend with people. But no, the the, the crew was Indian in, on both films with a lot of repeat business. You yeah. know, we went back and made it with the same people. And um, they couldn't quite understand that if we were going to shoot a street scene that we wouldn't clear the street entirely. And repeople it <laughs> with uh, background artists, of which you could probably afford a lot more than you could anywhere else in the world, yeah. and and do it that way. And I tried to explain to them I didn't want to do that. I wanted to feel the, you know, vibrations of that uh, world firsthand. And it did produce exactly the problem you're talking about because wherever I stopped to look at a shot, I would look over my shoulder. I'd have 40 people around me looking over my shoulder trying to decide which was the best shot as well (laughs) if they understood what I was talking about. So, But, um, you know, nobody understands culture shock until they go to that country. I mean, literally, I would say nobody does. It's just completely overwhelming when you go there. It's described by Judy Dench's character, uh, as a tidal wave that flows over you, if you try and resist it, you're going to get knocked down. Right. And if you go through the middle of it, and come out the other side, it's a pretty glorious experience. So, um, you know, it was really pretty life changing or certainly perspective changing. Um, I, I kind of jumped at the task when we all realized that the first film was open-ended, strangely, which we hadn't thought about particularly when we made it. God knows there was never th- any thought that of, the of film would reach as wide an audience <laughs> as it did. That uh, Yes, that we were budding franchise <laughs> with actors, you know, over 70. Um, but, but the chance to go back there and complete the story was kind of irresistible because everybody uh, who was involved in the film became incredibly attached to uh, the country. Judy's actually just gone back there again to make another... Well, she's not because she's playing Queen Victoria again, right. as a matter of fact, but she never went to India. But it is actually about India, that part of her, the, the film. Well, uh, those films were hugely successful. Huge. And, and when you were making it, as you said, you didn't never would have expected it to become the Almost franchise, the, the two mm. films. Mm. What do you think it was? Um, you know, I think it, it uncovered a neglected constituency as part of what it was. And I think that nobody had quite noticed, and we are credited with that. Now there's an awful lot of content that is directed specifically at that. Let's call it the AARP yeah. <laughs> community, of which I am now a fully paid up member. We're not fully paid up, but I certainly am uh, uh, would be if I were uh, living in North America. But um, I think it was the fact that these people go to the movies. They have a movie-going 
you know, tradition, mm-hmm. and they're now not encumbered by the things that keep you away from movies, babysitters, right. children. They can you know, go to very, very demanding. Now. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think I was part of it. But, you know, the weird thing that we found is that it spread beyond that demographic. It somehow was a film that both ends of a family could go and see, you know, a, a 15-year-old and, and, a, and a, a senior, if you see what I mean. It had obviously two very attractive actors in that age range anyway yeah. at the center of it. Um, and Dev Patel's a sort of star in his own right. Um, and um, uh, so I think it, it, but it's, and there was a universality in there. There was a, the humor in the piece totally came from and was rooted in the idea of mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, it was sort of characterized by a kind of gallows humor. I think that that contributed and I think it was the country. Right. You know, I think it's the country. The, the, it, my, it's a love letter to the country in a certain kind of a way. I mean, it's a complicated country with its own difficulties. Um, and goodness knows part of the culture shock you get when you go there is I reeled after for three days saying I can't possibly make a comedy here. Yeah. This is, this is um, insulting and ridiculous until you start to tune in to the – the characteristics of those people and uh, an extraordinary kind of optimism, uh, a kind of lack of judgment, um, a tremendous sense of humor, a tremendous sense of life. They party like nobody else in the world does. Um, And, uh, you know, you start to see around that. And I think that there's something incredibly infectious, obviously colorful, obviously phenomenally energetic, which is not the not the image that is projected mm-hmm. by the tourist board of india it's all about serenity and yeah. beauty and so forth but actually what hits you when you go there is the energy of the place so i think that was eye opening it was funny really funny yeah. very good script brilliant performers um but it touched some nerve and it's 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 a, a cherished film they're both cherished films and i you know when that happens, it's glorious, but you don't really know why. I mean, I, I thought it, it could be a very nice small film, the first one. I thought it would find its audience. I hoped it would. But we were so surprised when it when it went viral, as they say. You yeah. know, made uh, over, well, 13 times its budget, the first one. What do you want people to take away from this film? You know, it's a thriller, it's entertaining, it's a character study, it's lots of things. As you say, it's not your Brussels sprouts. You're not teaching anyone here, but there is a message. Yeah, there is a message, and there's an optimism, I think, about the film, which is that, you know, we better hang on to what we believe in and try and fight for it if if we want to make a dent or, or, or drain the swamp, if we're yeah. going to use the, the watchword. Uh, I mean, drain the swamp is much bandied around as if there are you know, uh, heroes and villains mm-hmm. and, and so forth. And I think part of the problem is that there's something wrong with the process. Um, you know, it, it's it, the, 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 the forefathers of that great nation were ineffably wise, but I think the one thing they didn't anticipate was how incredibly central money would become in the equation. And I think that's the corrupting influence um, because money buys everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a culture that's famously built on it. Uh, we now have a president-elect who styles himself as a billionaire who can't lose because he knows how to fiddle his taxes. 
you know, it's it's just everywhere. You see the corrosive, corrupting influence of that, and um, we get many, many, many things wrong in our country. But you know, when we have a financial scandal, cash for questions, yeah, you know, it's about whatever it was, two thousand pounds handed over to That's ask right. a question yeah. in Parliament is. That's the sort of level of corruption, which is deplorable. And I'm not, uh, God knows, we have our own problems and we've had our own political earthquake this year, which is as dismaying to me as the result of this election um, in, in America is. That was John Madden talking about Miss Sloan. You can see that in theaters right now. And if you're streaming movies legally, of course, check out The Debt. We talked about that one in there. Ethan Frome, he's directed that as well. Mrs. Brown, of course, Shakespeare in Love. Now, Riz Ahmed, as a kid, like a lot of kids, really liked Star Wars. Unlike most kids, though, he grew up to be part of the franchise playing pilot Bodie Rook in Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. Here's a little taste of a conversation. Next week, we're going to have a much more in-depth interview with him. But here's a, a teaser, a taste, just to whet your appetite for Riz Ahmed in Rogue One. Congratulations on the film. Thank you. Do you have early Star Wars memories? Were you a fan? Um, I was a fan, um, but it's only now that I've met real Star Wars fans that I realized that I'm, I wasn't really a fan. Yeah, I thought I was. Um, I remember the, uh, watching the the, um, the films the first time around when I was about six or seven years old with my older brother. They were kind of my first memories of watching any movie at all. And they left a massive impact on me. Um, I remember kind of running around with my brother after that for years, acting out our own weird sci-fi stories. Um, even though I didn't fully understand the storyline, I was too young, it was just the level of imagination and detail um, that gone into those movies really kind of, it makes an impression. So you mentioned the fans, because this is a whole new set of fans from, you know, other work that you've done from Nightcrawler and from The Night Of. Uh, have you had reaction from them yet? And if so, what kind of reaction have you had? Um, you know, Star Wars fans are dedicated, loyal fans. And um, I think the kind of vibe I've got from them so far is that they're really excited to see a film that both kind of preserves the legacy and the inheritance of, you know, the Star Wars saga, but also does something a little bit different and a little bit fresh and distinctive and separate from the other films. And I think that can be a really tricky balance to try and achieve, but I think they've really done that. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, just getting a lot of excitement from people so far. The most diverse cast ever, probably in a Star Wars film, I think. How important is that to you? I think it just makes sense that our films reflect the society, you know, around us mm -hmm. um, and also reflect the audiences watching the films. And a story like Star Wars is a global story. You know, it's a, it belongs to all of us. Audiences from around the world are excited about Star Wars. So it just makes sense that they, uh, when they think about who the best actors might be for these roles, they just cast their net you know, really wide all around the world and say, yeah, okay, we'll have Ben Mendelsohn from Australia and Forrest Whitaker from LA and Mads Mikkelsen over here and Donnie Yen. And um, you know, I'm lucky to have been caught up in that net as well. Do you think that this film, although the timing is coincidental, coming out just around the time that Donald Trump will become president, uh, sends any kind of message? It's, you know, very, as we say, diverse cast. It's a, it's a different kind of thing. Is there any correlation there or am I grasping it straight? Um, well, I think, you know, the Star Wars 
um, kind of release dates are worked out well oh, in advance. Know, wait, no, of this it, is really coincidental, kind of absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, I think, look, hopefully great stories are resonant um, and strike a chord with people and try and reflect some of the issues that are going on in the world when they come out. And hopefully they're still resonant and relevant, you know, in 10 years' time. So um, I think really what, what this story has the potential to do is just bring all kinds of people together um you know who can enjoy this of all ages and all backgrounds and that can only be a good thing tell me about Bodie Rook uh Kathleen Kennedy who's a longtime producer of the Star Wars films called him a troublemaker what else can you tell me about him well you know it's interesting she calls uh Bodie Rook a troublemaker I sometimes wonder whether she's talking about me uh on the film set I think Bodie is somebody who is thrust into a really unfamiliar set of circumstances he's just a an imperial cargo pilot, you know, just a guy, average Joe, trying to earn a living. And he, it's a company town that he lives in, the occupied planet of Jeddah. So he works for the Empire. And it's um, he's really thrust into a new set of circumstances that forces him to um, reconsider his, his allegiances and, um, you know, what he's doing in these turbulent times. So... Uh, I think it's natural for someone when they're a fish out of water to feel a little bit kind of anxious and maybe a bit jittery. Um, he's certainly not a kind of hardened soldier like the other guys. Gareth Edwards told me one time, your director on this one, when he was making Godzilla, he said, it was like having a thousand children and they're running around in traffic all the time. <laughs> and you're trying to look after them. This is a large scale thing. Uh, what was it like for you to be kind of placed in the middle of this, what must have been an absolutely enormous shoot. Yeah, well, I didn't have Gareth's problem, so I was just one of the kids just ducking and diving in between motorcycles and cars. And I have to say, um, you know, we made it through the other side and it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It. Cheers, man. Thank you. That was Riz Ahmed. Be sure to come by next week to the House of Crows. Just knock lightly on the door. We'll let you in. And listen to the entire thing, a big 20-minute long interview with Riz Ahmed talking about Rogue One and the Night Of and lots of other things. Also, including, he talks about his music career, which is really fascinating stuff. T.J. Miller. Now, in Office Christmas Party, T.J. Miller plays Clay, a scattered office manager with, quote, a mind like a drunk baby, unquote. In a last-ditch effort to save his branch from closure, he tries to woo a lucrative client by throwing a no-holds-barred Christmas party. Now, it's an ensemble cast in this movie. There's heavy hitters like Jason Bateman, Olivia Munn, Kate McKinnon, Jennifer Aniston's in here. Uh, but he really wants to talk about what he's doing for you and me. We talk about Office Christmas Party a little bit, but he wants to talk about his greater social plan. Here's T.J. Miller. What's up? Let's talk, uh, let's talk comedy in a time of tragedy. Well, let's, let's do that. Uh, tell me a little bit about... Uh, well, let, let's actually, you know what? Let, let's start there. I was going to kind of get to that. But um, what do you love most about comedy? What is it that, that makes you get up and go to work every day? Well, my mission statement originally was a, uh, basically I now have a political obstacle, my social mission statement. God damn it. And, uh, you know, the social mission was kind of, you know, tragedy permeates our everyday life. In a post-religious, post-meaning society, people are lonely, they're scared, they have death anxiety, they don't understand how to attribute meaning to their own existence. 
And so through comedy, we can both provide an opiate, right, or a distraction from that tragedy that permeates our everyday life. And through satire, we can hopefully frame the world in a way that people can laugh at. And also, I aim to help people um, through my stand-up, you know, release the death anxiety. But I aim to help people sort of know, you know, not take themselves so seriously. Not take other people seriously and not take themselves and was that the lesson that you learned somehow along the way? Did comedy do that for you? Yeah, you know, I think I've turned to comedy a lot. Terrible breakups. I think Swartzen has helped me out a lot. Um, in these turbulent times, you know, comedy is something that we can turn to, and I've turned to it, but it's a healthy opiate, and right now we're hurting, so we very much need an opiate. And that's where our office Christmas party comes in. That's exactly right. I mean, what better way? First of all, you don't have to talk to your family for an hour and a half during the holidays. That's a bonus. <laughs> and if the movie's funny, you talk about how funny it was for an hour, how dynamic Jennifer Aniston and Jason Bateman and Courtney B. Vance were, how strange I look in a Santa suit for that long, and that my facial hair is still abrasive and arresting. Um, and, and, you know, that's two and a half, two and a half to three hours of stress-free holiday. That's what we're pitching you. And... It's a funny movie. It's a laugh a minute. Well, it's a laugh every minute and a half, two minutes. We want to give people a break. It's exhausting to laugh every minute. So it's a laugh every minute and a half. But by that, I mean it's a very uh, consistent comedy. And it's one that you can see with, you know, anybody. Right? People from your family, people you know, that you don't necessarily get along with. We're encouraging people to go to the one thing that unites us all, which is the communal experience of going to a movie theater and laughing with other people, with strangers, with people that you don't even know. Go and be happy with strangers, you know, and, and don't argue or fight with your family. Just, like, laugh with them. Uh, so, I, it's, look, it's very easy to promote a comedy during the apocalypse, So especially one with Kate McKinnon and Jennifer Aniston, and Jason Bateman, and Karen Tony, and Randall Park, and Vanessa Bayer, and the list goes on and on. I mean, it's all—it's really the strongest comedians working today. Well, and it's don't forget Courtney B. Vance, because I don't think of him as a comedic actor, and he killed well, me in this Well, nobody, nobody did, but he, what it is is he's a committed actor, and right. he's actually a really funny guy. So what we find is that he brings the same level of commitment to this comedic role that he does to dramatic roles, he's just—he's he, fantastic in the movie. He goes from being the Courtney B. Vance that we all know and love and expect him to be, sort of straight-laced, excellent, dramatic actor. And then we get to the party and he just explodes. I mean, he's, he's the wildest element of the movie by far. And it's really fun to watch him play against that. And he's he also gonna... sees me in a different role. You see me in a different role because... You know, I'm sort of the heart of the movie. I'm playing a sweet guy who wants the best for people. He believes in people over profit, whereas Aniston's character believes in profit over people. Mm -hmm. That's another message of the movie is these workplace environments have become so sterile and corporations have become so much about profit and not the people that they work with um, that, you know, we've lost the fun of work. We don't have cool... Uh, office Christmas parties anymore. So we're sort of saying, like, you spend so much of your time with the people you work with, why not have a, a night or two a year that you can kind of just, like, relax, you know, and 
just take a night off from being afraid of offending someone or getting sued or any of that stuff. Um, and that's our message, too, to, to North America right now, which is take the holidays to just drink way too much eggnog, laugh, relax, and know that we've got a lot of work to do in 2017. But in the meantime, let's just let everything settle in. Let's take time to heal and relax and... You know, that's, that, that, that's the big message. I'm re- I feel very fortunate that both this and the Critics' Choice Awards on A&E on Sunday are two ways that I can help North America laugh their way through the weekend. I'm looking forward to the Critics' Choice. I vote on those, so I'm uh, very uh, oh, nice. in the yeah. really? So I hope, uh, I hope you voted against me because it's going to be a really funny show if I lose. <laughs> I'm not allowed to say anything. I'm not allowed to tell you anything. Uh, you used to be a legal secretary, right? Is that right? Yes. In the building, okay, that, we, that we're supposed to be in. No. They chose this. It's the most insane thing. So I was a legal secretary at a firm called Pat and Ryan at the IBM Plaza, right, in downtown Chicago. Yeah. I used to go to the window... When I was a day, when I had that as a day job, and put my hands against the glass. I mean, I, I worked in a cubicle, so I had to wait till somebody with an office went to lunch. <laughs> but I put my hands against the glass, and I'd look out the window and go, "What will it be? Will I ever be in a movie?" And then cut to fucking full circle, me outside with Jason Bateman walking across the bridge, eating a pretzel, and just looking up at that window, being like, "Yep, you will be." This ended up being it. So that was a very strange full circle moment, but one that I absolutely loved. And, you know, I was putting in the work back then, man. I was doing, I was working from 7 to 5 or 6 p.m., running home, eating food, standing up, and then rushing to sign up for an open mic. I performed one or two sets a night, every single night, seven nights a week for four years. I didn't even take holidays off. Wow. And if I wasn't doing comedy, I was consuming it, or I was studying acting, doing voiceover, setting improvisation, performing sketch comedy with my group, Heavyweight, who is now, those are the people that write the Critics' Choice Awards. Um, yeah, I really, I was grinding it. I really put in the time. Um, but, you know, we didn't have office Christmas parties, and they certainly weren't crazy. Right. In fact, not only do I think we didn't have really a holiday party, or if we did, it was like cash bar and went from 7 to 9 p.m. Yeah. But we had every, one, one Friday a month, we would have cake and kegs. One Friday a month for the birthdays that month. Now, I don't know if you've ever eaten cake and drank a, a beer. Yeah. Or from a keg appeal. of beer. Yeah. It's the worst idea ever. Both of those things are so filling <laughs> and kind of disgusting. Yeah, we just were like, oh, boys, Idaho. So you had, they didn't even have to make it from 7 to 9. You'd sort of hang out, eat too much cake, drink some beer, and then want to go home in an hour and a half. Uh, yeah, this was fun. Like, this, this movie was the best office Christmas party I've been to. And it was a surreal one because everybody's partying and dancing and hooking up, and there's no music. Right. There's, I was totally going to ask you about that. There's like 350 people there, right? Is that right? 
Yes, absolutely. And they're all dancing and hooking up and partying as hard as they can to silence so we can get the dialogue clean. <laughs> so how surreal is that? There's 350 people, you're wearing a Santa suit, singing, uh, let me be, Beyond let me clear surreal. my throat over and over throat. again. Beyond surreal. And, but again, that was the best party I'd ever been to. Yeah. Because it was a work party. I was working. Uh, there was silent partying going on all around me. And it was one of these sets where everybody's so funny that, like, when you're not filming, you go to watch other people. Right. And when they're doing the coverage of the other people, like Vanessa or Randall or Oliver J. Cooper or Rob Corddry, any of these people, you kind of get to watch this hilarious comedy film being made. So it was a damn good party. And I think that, you know, the North American public will agree. That's T.J. Miller fending off the apocalypse with jokes, jokes and humor. Thanks for coming by. That's it. That's all there is. The bubble lights are being switched off for another week. Come back next week. We'll have the tree topper up. All the ornaments will be on the tree. And we'll have an entire long feature interview with Riz Ahmed. We're talking Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Uh, David Frankel will stop by to talk about directing Will Smith and the new movie Collateral Beauty. There's lots more to come. So come on back. And be sure to tell your friends, we put up a new show every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. It may be one of your favorite people. So come on back. Uh, my thanks to you for listening. My thanks to uh, John Madden, to Riz Ahmed, to TJ Miller. Uh, most of all, though, hey, my thanks goes to you uh, for making the House of Krauss a fun and cool place to be.